Well, it is very nice to be back in New Braunfels, and it's very nice to come back to New Braunfels, and it's actually got a chill in the air. This is amazing, and it's a pleasant surprise for someone that also has felt like she's been cold since about July this year, because we didn't really ever have a summer in England, it felt like a, maybe a week somewhere in June, I think it was, and then it was cloudy from there on out, so just, it's very, very pleasant, so not be too hot or too cold. Now, I don't know what kind of year you all have had, but... I've had one of those years in which it felt a little like having God shake your teeth. And, <laughs> and anything in you that's not solidly built is going to fall apart. And, um, and so the message today really comes out of that season because of feeling this sense of, hello, we're not, oh, I'm not connected, huh? Are you going to put the slides up? Okay. Um, the Advent season of anticipating the King and the sense of really seeing Jesus in the storms of life is where I want to head this morning. And um, I don't know, I, I follow the news here, so I think it's a bit like the news in England. It's bleak, bleak, and bleaker most of the time. And um, you kind of have to draw away and take a deep breath and think, ah, I know there's hope in the world, let me find it here in a minute. And, uh, and put myself into that that sense of anticipation of the King of Kings, who is here. He's come, and he's with us. So I really found... Keep going. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start us in Matthew 14 to Matthew 15. And, and there's a sequence of events that we usually look at them kind of independently. And this morning I want to do it as an anticipation of the world we live in. Because all of it is what the disciples experienced all together in what I would say was probably 24 to 48 hours of total chaos in their lives. And when we look at these events separately, they're each one impacting, but I want to walk through them together. So I'm going to start at the beginning of um, John the Baptist's message. And um, John has been visiting and speaking and he is the prophet to Israel calling them to repent, if we remember the story. But in, John, in Matthew 14, we hear the story of Herod finally decides he's going to kill him. And so, in the end of that passage, the, John's disciples hear that he's been killed. They go and get the body. They bury him. And then they go to Jesus to tell Jesus that his, this has happened. Now, I think in some ways they probably all anticipated that John would die because the prophets didn't usually in the Old Testament live out a long and profitable life. Somewhere along the line, the, the state did kill them. And so, but still, the shock of that, and this is Jesus' cousin. And then in 1413, we see Jesus withdrew, withdrew. He hears the news from the disciples, and he says to them, we're going to... We, withdraw from this area to the boat and then I'm going to go off by myself but in the 14 then we see the crowds follow they get a wind of where he's going because we're like along the top of the sea of Galilee and everything is really if you go by car nowadays it takes two seconds to go from point A to point B to point C but they are basically sailing along that that upper shore but the crowds follow they're hungry for something then Jesus, okay, he's been shaken. There's no way in his humanity that the death of his cousin, 
the death of someone that has preceded him, all that this foreshadows, isn't going to affect him. We have to think about emotionally. What would that be like? And in 14, 14, we see him looking and seeing the crowd. And how does he respond? He has compassion on them and begins to heal the sick. And so his whole response to the situation is an all-day super ministry session like the disciples have never seen before. It's the largest gathering of people because this is then the 5,000 that we're going to end the day by feeding them. So we've got all these things happening one right after the other. And I'm just thinking if I was a disciple following him, trying to get my head around I've just heard John the Baptist has been killed. I've just heard this. I've just heard this. And now we're doing this. It had to be a bit of a whirlwind of an, a day. And then in 1422, at the end of the feeding of the 5,000, all those miracles, he immediately puts the disciples into the boat to go to the other side while he dismisses the crowds and he goes to pray. I was telling Scott yesterday, I thought, what does it look like with one man dismissing a crowd of 5,000? And it's more than 5,000 because it's everybody. But you think that's a really strange statement. (laughs) And the disciples, I'm thinking, must have thought this was a little bit strange. It's the end of the day. They're at the end of the lake. And he's put him in the boat. And you guys go that away. And I will go up to pray. So in that boat, let's just think for a second. What might it have been like without the commander-in-chief with them? Well, I don't think these men at this point show us that they're strong pillars of unshakable faith, do they? They tend to get rattled quite quickly, you know? So in that boat, I'm just thinking, what might those discussions have been like? Well, I'm not sure that they weren't incredibly shaken and a little bit unbelievably shaken by Herod's actions. You know, they know that what they're doing is a bit on the edgy edge of the kingdom. But that now proves it. Then you think they've watched all day as Jesus performed so many miracles that I think we all would have been boggled by that alone. Then they've watched this miraculous food production that think, how in the world is that happening? So there could be this awe, this godly fear going on. At the same time, a lot of arguments about, well, I don't know if I'm really up for Herod chasing us down to kill us, you know. So just what are these men discussing? But it had to be more than silence sitting in the boat together. And they certainly didn't talk about fishing, I would imagine. But then we see that they're, these are seasoned fishermen. Now, going to the Sea of Galilee, they will tell you the fishermen on that sea know the signs of when storms are coming because it's a very dangerous sea. The way that the wind whips things down the valley, it comes through and through to Syria. And so storms come out of nowhere, but they can read the signs. So they know when to put in. So I'm kind of thinking, this is my imagination, but I think they were so busy arguing with each other, they failed to see that the storms are coming. And um, they find themselves in the middle of a very violent storm. And then, to top it off, Jesus appears walking on the water. Now, in reality, I'm just thinking at this point, I think, I'm on emotional overload. This is a little too much. (laughs) Let's break it down a little bit. Come on. And um, I just read the other day, and I'd never thought about this before, but in the the mind of the, the Jews of the time, in most pagan people... Water represented the world of the dead. 
It was something to be feared. It wasn't something to be uh, a beautiful place to go sit by. It was fearful. And their first thought would be, Jesus died. And if you think about the sequence of Herod the Great just killed John the Baptist, that would be a rational thought. And now we're seeing his ghost out here on the water. That'd be a little horrifying as well. And then so Peter, though, then goes, is that you, Lord? And he tries to get out of the boat. We know the story. He walks for a little bit, and then he starts to sink. And then Jesus gets him back in the boat. And then finally, at the end of this crazy, crazy day, they all worship Jesus as the Son of God. Now, that's a lot of emotion. From the depths of despair to the exhilaration of suddenly they see this is the Son of God. Now, that isn't to be said lightly because they will forget that time and time again now till the day of Pentecost. And the day of Pentecost, with the Holy Spirit coming, it is impacted on them and they go to the end of their lives without ever forgetting it. Because the Holy Spirit then lived with them constantly in them and through them. But I think it's a bit of what I want to say to us today is this this thing about being in the boat and all of that emotion is where we are today. I think it's a beautiful picture of thinking every day we're probably all of us being shaken by various things, whether family issues, good and bad that go up and down, the things of life around us in the community, our financial bookings, if yours is like mine, go up and down. You know, there's just a zillion besides world events, which are just a little out of control. Now, I live in a lovely city, a town, as Scott said, just north of London. And it is, in British terms, it's called super diverse. The only places that would match it are the big cities of Europe. London, Manchester, all of those are super diverse. But there's a high school, or they would call it an academy, just down the street from me. In that academy alone, they have 55 different languages that kids speak. It's speakers of English and that other language. Lithuanian, Russia, Albanian, Hindi. We go on and on and on and on with the Southeast Asian languages. Turkish. Um, and I think, how in the world do you work in that world? I mean, I, looked, I worked in diversity as a teacher when I taught, but not that kind of diversity. And all those cultures together. So in the town, it is an incredible sense of we're living in the midst of all of this movement of people that is coming. And um, as you all have probably seen on social media, once that little child died on the beach in, in Greece, that riveted, I'm not sure about here, but there, it riveted the world's attention on we've got to stop not paying attention, we've got to do something. Now, four years into this, we're now doing something. But that child's picture was just everybody knows a baby in a cute little outfit. And, um, and so the welcome, the stranger signs went out across Europe about, we don't know how to do this, but we've got to start saying we welcome you. Now, where did that come from? Well, that comes out of a Europe that is a Christianized continent. And I'm well aware that the Bible's story about welcoming the stranger is like the major thing up to Jesus as a stranger and welcoming him in. So there was this, and it's a huge public debate. It's not all one-sided. It's, it's got a lot of angles to it. And there's a lot of reasons why they, they want to do this that we don't have time to talk about this morning, but I can illuminate. 
But who's fleeing? You might want to ask a little bit about who's fleeing. Um, well, who's fleeing are mainly Syrians, but there are also people from Afghanistan, Iraq. Some have come around from Ethiopia and Eritrea and that area, but most of those have come through the Mediterranean. But these guys mainly come from that, that, that area of conflict. People who basically, their homes are, if you Googled any pictures, there's nowhere to live. And it is so dangerous. And if you're there, you're going to get recruited into a militia, whether you like it or not. And so people want out of that. The other thing that you want to know about them is that they are very well educated. This is the wealth of Syria. It's the wealth of Afghanistan. It's the wealth of Iraq. These people have money to be able to pay to get across Turkey and then hire someone that they may not live through the boat ride across to Lesbos. And that's the tragedy of it. For everybody that makes it, a boatload would have sunk. And, um, but they're all Muslims, and there's Christians, and there's Zoroastrians, there's some other Middle Eastern, older, older faiths that are in there. But they're people that do have skills. So they do arrive with cell phones because they have cell phones in Syria and across that region. That's the only way they can navigate across those. And, and, and then who's left behind? The poorest of the poor. Those countries really are being emptied. And most of my Middle Eastern friends would say this is the greatest tragedy because they're not going to probably go back home once they leave. But the ones that have stayed in Turkey, stayed in Lebanon, stayed in Jordan, which is the majority of refugees have stayed put close by, they're staying because they still have a passion for maybe at some point we could go home. Now, we're a, t- a town of immigrants. It was an English town once upon a time. It was a wealthy English town. And then gradually the Irish were the first immigrants, then the Afro-Caribbeans, the Pakistanis, the Bengalis, and then it's one group after another until my neighborhood going to the Catholic school, what you're going to hear is mostly Polish being spoken in the morning and the afternoon when parents bring their kids to school. And it's kind of mind-boggling because you're like, I think I live in an English neighborhood, but, um, but it's, it's super diverse. So come back to the disciples in the boat with all of that. We might want to ask, how are we feeling in light of all the changes? How, what might we be discussing? Are we shaken and scared by the magnitude of the problems? And they are gigantic. Europe is never going to be the same again. Are, you falling into the, are we falling into the grips of the politics of fear? There is a lot of that out there. I have only to Google around on my Facebook and find some pretty horrifying things. But then we might want to take the other half of the disciples' response. How are we responding to the storm with worship like the disciples did? They had to be absolutely overwhelmed by what they saw Jesus doing. They had to be overwhelmed by the miraculous food provision. They had to be in awe or godly fear of who is this man that we've been sharing our lives with. And what might it cost us? You know, that probably, I would think, would be a very natural question. And what does it look like for us now as his followers? What's it going to look like? All these things he's doing. It'll never be the same world. But that's the kingdom of God. So just a quick picture of what does it look like for a town to respond to 
this dilemma, not in fear, but in a church community that's interacting with government officials, interacting with the, the Luton Council of Faith, all of the social services working together to receive a traumatized people group into the country. England's not taking a large number of people. I mean, you'd think we were taking thousands the way we've gotten wound up at points. But um, at the moment, we're, it's a very small number in Luton because we're already very crowded. But the thing that's exciting about it is the sense of how do we make these people know they are welcome. And these are people that have come from a tradition of where Muslims and Christians have lived together. And they want one of my Egyptian friends who his wife is English and he's a minister in the UK. Ashraf just saying, you know, we need to remember these people already know what it's like with Muslims and Christians living together in peace. And so are we going to create that? So we've got all these people working together to welcome. So here's a little bit of what I've listened to in being a part of just going to the meetings. And I've really not done much except just say I want to be involved. But these were some of the first ideas. Let's be sure we have a welcome committee at the airport. Let's start to pair up families with families, English families, that know the culture, can welcome them into their homes, that they really get to meet us. Let's help the town government plan the right housing for them. And we make sure it's really user-friendly because there are a lot of this is going to be provided through government funding for a year. Um, churches and others offering English as a second language course free of charge to get them up to speed as quickly as possible. One church in the center of town is going to act as a central information center. Um, how are we going to get the food bank involved in this because these people will need food. And then other strategies are going to come out of that. How are we going to take care of jobs, helping them find jobs? How are we going to look for trauma counseling? All these people have been through war, okay? So that's on the ground within the town. And it's working in conjunction with other faith communities because we want to do it together. And then another aspect of the response is, well, let's not just welcome them in. Let's get people to go out there. So the two things that we've talked about would be one is one of the places that's getting the most impact of these guys coming from Turkey is Lesbos, Greece. And we've already had teams from the town and YWAM teams from over in Harpenden, which is four miles away, go out to be part of the teams that are pulling people out of the water. And their stories are incredible of pulling them out of these boats that are sinking as they're getting closer to the shore. And, and then they basically outfit them with new clothes, give them a few days of supplies, check on health problems with people that are there, just outfit them, and then send them off in this long stream of people that's walking. And, um, and there's a vision in that to, like, how do we get more people to be there? How do we get a stationary team to be there to care for people? Is that the best place for them to be? Or... You know, there's just a lot of problem solving. Nobody foresees this is going to stop anytime soon. And um, so it's a long-term support. The other is within our, our church context, so the leaders that are working together, there were two ministries uh, that were named that everybody went, I think let's support those people out there on the field. So one is on the border of Turkey and Iraq, and they have schools that are set up in the refugee camps for children. 
The other one is in Lebanon run by a YWAM leader there that's outstanding. And for years, he's Lebanese and he and his wife have run camps for kids of all faiths. But they have been running schools in the camps there and just providing education. So both of those that people could give to, but they could also get involved and go. So that we build the ability to see the world from out there and inside up close. And most of that is coming to a place of we don't want to be pushed by the fear, you know? If an ISIS person wants to come to England, it's not as a refugee, you guys. It's get on a plane as a tourist and come. They can come in that way really easy. So there's no room for fear in this because I could think of a million reasons to be fearful at this point, but that's not the kingdom of God. (laughs) But what we can learn about how to respond to the days we're living in is can we recognize we're being shaken and then recognize we have choices to make, especially as followers of Jesus. Keep our eyes on Jesus and ask him, how are we called to love his children? I'll tell you, Syria was my favorite place in the Middle East to drive through. Unbelievable hospitality of the poorest of the poor in villages. Um, Really downtrodden, oppressed people who never failed to welcome you in. And, um, and incredible stories of the church, from the early church, because that's so much of the early church history is there. So it's pretty amazing. But most of all, let's overcome evil by doing good. That's what the Bible teaches, to have compassion. In the midst of his sorrow, Jesus had compassion, and he overcame the evil that Herod did What the most amazing day, which makes me just want to cry and shout. I just think, wow, that was a response from heaven. Let's just open the doors of heaven and show you what the king of kings can do. And that was the kingdom of God come down that day. So I think that's what our calling is. And that will give us a creativity, the ability to think, what is my role? You know, it's a big picture and a lot of different things. Prayer is one of the most important things. Can we pray this thing into oblivion, you know? Be creative. Be open to being challenged by God to see more of his kingdom. There is more happening in the Middle East than I want to say on the tape. (laughs) Because it is incredible what is going on in many sections of the Middle East. In the middle of tragedy, God is at work. These are his kids. These are his people. Whether we remember them or not, he's never going to forget them. And then let's just not forget that let's worship him for the reality of who our king really is. Whether we're acknowledging him or not, he is king. And, uh, And his love will conquer this. It can see us through in an era of the church. That will, ne- that will change us. It will change us. My year of being shaken was horrible, but it was for my best good. I can say it really has given me new energy, new strength, and it really came from two different things that kept me alive. God's word and his presence and the faithful love of friends that surrounded me and community that kept encouraging me, don't give up in this time of trial. We're in that era as a church. And so as we go forward, let's just really grab hold of what God has given us because we have so much more than we can even begin to understand. It's all of heaven's resources. So that's my message, and I'm just passionate about it because he loves us so much, and he's called us for just such this times. 
He's not taken unawares. He will not forget us. He will not leave us. And he will give us what we need to really overcome evil by doing good. Amen.